Good morning. A few reminders for you before we get started. If you are a techie sort and you like to listen to podcasts, you can find us on your favorite podcast platform. We upload our lectures every week to iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts. So you can find us there on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. It's a really convenient way to catch up on lectures. You can find us on the web at woman to woman Bible study, all spelled out in one word.com. Or you can find us on Facebook at Woman to Woman Bible Study. Those are great ways that you can stay in touch and see what's going on in our Bible study. Well, we are talking today in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And so I want you to turn with me um, in your Bible so we can get started. Several years ago, my mom and I, in an effort to stay physically fit, began running. It was a program that uh, promised to take you from being essentially couch potato to being able to run a 5K by the time you were done with it. So we started this program, and every day my high school daughter would say, Mom, can I go run with you? And I'd say, nope, not today. I should say my state award-winning track running daughter would ask to run with us. And so I kept saying, no, 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 until we were kind of well enough into the program. We'd been doing it for a while. And so I thought, you know, sure, come run with us. And so I said, you know, it's not going to be a workout on your level, but try to keep up. So after our warm-up laps, we began to run. My mom and I had gotten up to top speed and we were feeling pretty good. And I glanced over to my left where my daughter was walking. And she said, when do we start the run? We stopped in our tracks and I said, what? And she started laughing hilariously to the point where if I remember correctly, she had to lay down. She was laughing so hard because she realized that our top running speed was the speed that she walked at. So we didn't let her run with us anymore after that. Shortly thereafter, anyways, I was reading in the Bible and it says in Proverbs that the wicked run when no one is chasing them. And I felt like that was God speaking to me and saying that I didn't need to run anymore. So we gave up our dreams of running in marathons. But in 2 Samuel chapter 2 today, we're going to look at a time when running got someone into trouble. So Let's just review quickly. Um, David has been living in exile in Ziklag. Remember in 1 Samuel, he has been chased out essentially by Saul. He's So he's been living in hiding and he has taken refuge in Ziklag with the Philistines. Well, he is there um, and he goes out uh, of the town. And while he and his soldiers are gone, the Amalekites come through, they burn down the city, they take plunder. They take the the wives and children of David and his men, um, and they they burn the city down, and David has to chase after them, and he recoups his um, belongings and all the women and children, things that were taken, and they come back to Ziklag. As they return, they learn that Saul and Jonathan are dead, and so um, as chapter two opens, David inquires of the Lord, and he says in verse one, we see, in the course of time, 
David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, go up. And David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Hinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. So let's just talk about what happens in these first few verses. We see that David um, inquires of the Lord, and maybe you wondered how exactly did he inquire of God. Um, well, we learn uh, as you go back through 1 Samuel, you see that this is his practice. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 9 through 12, um, and then in 1 Samuel 30, verses 7 through 8, we see that Abiathar, the high priest, has brought with him to, um, uh, to where David is, um, the ephod. And that is a um, chest piece that is worn, the high priest would wear, and it had these stones um, inside and the high priest would pull one out and that was considered um, how God would speak to them and they would use that as an indicator of what they should do. And so David, it's his practice um, in those chapters in 1 Samuel, we see that he would inquire of God, should I go here? Should I follow these um, soldiers? Should I do this? So he was in the habit of asking God for guidance. So let's look at where he is and where he goes. So let's just zoom this in here. So you can see down here um, is Ziklag, and that is where David has been. And you can almost see this grayed out area here. Um, this is um, the territory of Judah. And this light pink down here along the side, this is the territory of the Philistines. And so he's just basically over the border into Philistine territory. Um, when he leaves Ziklag and he goes to Hebron to, um, to live with his men and their families. So that's where our story kind of starts. Why Hebron is an important place in the Bible. Um, if you have studied the Bible, uh, even kind of moderately, you may be familiar with some things that took place there. Um, Abraham and Sarah are buried there. Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah, those are some significant characters um, in the story of the nation of Israel that are buried there. It's in the land of Judah. You can see this um, area here is all the territory of Judah, which is the tribe that David was from. So it makes sense that he would go to kind of like his family area, people that knew him and knew his family. Um, in the first Samuel chapter 30, um, we, you may remember if you studied for Samuel with us, that when he brought back all the plunder that he uh, recovered from the Amalekites, he sent the plunder to certain cities. Um, and one of the places that he sent that was to Hebron. So it was a place he was familiar with. It was almost like um, going home back to your family town um, in a lot of ways. So David returns home, and in verse 4, we see the men of Judah came to see him. First of all, keep in mind, it was well over 600 men, right? The Bible tells us um, it's about 600 men that, that came in, came with him, um, and they had wives and children. So it was a large number of people that moved into the area and then to the surrounding kind of uh, suburbs, if you will, of the city. So people would have noticed 
that this large group was moving in. And so the men, when they realized it was David and who they were, the men came and anointed him as the king of Judah. Now he had already been um, anointed once by Samuel. Now it's in a private ceremony with basically just his family in attendance. So this is the first time that people outside of his family um, would have been, would have recognized in such a public way that he was being um, anointed as the king. During the course of that time, it would have made sense, right? He's been, he's moved in, he's been anointed as king, he's talking to these men. And so the death of Saul and Jonathan comes up. And David asks, or we can assume that he would have asked, or someone would have mentioned, um, what happened to the bodies of Saul and Jonathan? So he says, what happened? And the men tell him that the, um, the warriors of Jabesh Gilead went to um, recover their bodies. So let's just look here at the map and I can show you what that would have entailed. All right, so down here is Hebron, which is where David is now. And way up here at the top of the map, here's Jabesh Gilead. And so Saul and Jonathan were in a fierce battle in Beth Sheen, and that is where they actually were killed um, by the Philistines. And so you'll remember that the Philistines chopped off um, the head of Saul and nailed his body up on the wall and would have been, um, and so he, they were kind of using him as an example, kind of a spoil of war. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead under the cover of darkness crossed over the Jordan River, went and got his body and the body of Jonathan brought um, them back and gave them a burial. Now, why? Maybe you wondered why Saul, um, from David's perspective, was um, uh, angry. He was um, unpredictable in some of his behaviors. He was angry. You know, he um, was violent. He had violent tendencies. Um, and so, but if you go back all the way to 1 Samuel chapter 11, you find out why the men of Jabesh Gilead felt they owed Saul. Um, in 1 Samuel 11, there's this account of the Ammonites attacking Jabesh Gilead. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead said, listen, what, we'll make peace with you. Um, let's, let's make a treaty. And so the Ammonites basically said, absolutely, we will make a treaty with you. We'll just gouge out the right eye of every single person here, and then we'll leave you alone. Well, the men of Jabesh Gilead said, you know, can you give us a couple days to think about that and see if we can round up someone to help us? So the Ammonites said, we'll be back in seven days. So Jabesh Gilead sent out um, messengers to the surrounding areas um, asking for help, and no one would really step up to help. Well, Saul heard about the threat and was moved by the Spirit of God. He became angry, and he rallied over 300,000 men um, together to defend the, the town of Jabesh Gilead. And so he said to um, the people, he said, if you're not behind Saul, myself, and Samuel, um, you're against us, essentially. And so the, the men rallied together, 330,000 of them came, and they said, um, tell the Ammonites that you'll be happy to allow them to make a treaty with you. And when the Ammonites came, um, the 
the Israelites slaughtered them. So the the soldiers in Jabesh Gilead um, they, and the men that and the people there felt um, a, a debt and rightly so to Saul. Um, and so it would have made sense that they wanted to honor him um, in this way. So David was grateful for their bravery and um, the honor that they showed. So he sent a message to them from Hebron. Remember, he's way down here in Hebron. He sends a message way up here, uh, up to the northern part, <coughs> excuse me, of Israel. Um, and says um, that he, to thank them and that he honored them and that he had been anointed king by um, the men of Judah. And we did that for a couple of reasons. First of all, because he genuinely, I believe, felt grateful to them. Um, we just read in chapter one, the moving tribute that he paid to Saul and Jonathan. Um, and so to know that these other people were willing to go out of their way to and, and risk their own lives to honor Saul um, and Jonathan must have meant something to him. So he wanted to thank them. And it also let them know that he um, would not hold anything against them. Um, even though he had been made the king down in Judah, he was not expecting to come in and in a sense lord it over them. Um, and so he was just kind of letting them know what was happening. So we go on to um, verse eight and this other things are happening. Meanwhile, so while this is taking place, um, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Manahim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned for two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time that David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. So, uh, there's some time has passed in here and you may have kind of been puzzled over the timing because David was king for um, seven years, but it says that um, Ishbosheth reigned for two years. Um, but so um, what most scholars think is it took some time to get the Philistines out of those territories up here in Northern Israel, which is where um, Abner was kind of taking um, Ishbosheth, and he was setting him up. He said, "Oh, he's he's going to be the king." And so you can see here is Man Mahanaim, um, and he, then he made him king over um, some of the places all up in here. Here's Ephraim. Um, there's uh, the the territories all up through here, where he was establishing um, Ishbosheth as as the king. So Abner, son of Ner, in verse 12, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, the son of Zariah and David's men, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat on one side of the pool and one group sat on the other side. So Abner has promoted Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and he's installed him as the king over Israel. But Abner was really the power behind the throne in a lot of ways. Ishbosheth 
kind of a no-name figure. Um, most um, scholars think that he was um, the, the son perhaps of a concubine. Um, so now um, Abner has sort of established him here in the part of Israel, the northern part of Israel. And now he brings his men and starts heading towards Judah, where David is established as the king. Now, went out from is what the verse says. It says in verse 12, um, the uh, Abner and the servants went out from Mahanim. Um, and that phrasing um, in scripture really um, denotes an act of war. It doesn't mean that they were just, you know, going down to say hello or going for a cordial visit. He was bringing with him a military force. And it was an act of war that they were marching towards um, Hebron, which was where David was. So David's men, under the direction of Joab, they head north up here and they meet um, the troop basically in Gibeon. It's about seven miles north of Jerusalem. You can see it's not very far just to skip up here on the map. Um, it's about seven miles north there. And so that's where um, Joab meets them. And they stop at the well, it's called the Well of Gibeon. So let's look at that. So this is what the pool or the well of Gibeon would have looked like. Um, it was recently excavated, uh, well, recently, 1956, and then again in the 60s. And then again in the 70s, they made some more discoveries in the area around Gibeon. Um, the well is 40 feet across, just, just under 40 feet across from side to side. It's 179 steps down. Um, so you can go down here to the bottom of the well. Um, and it was a place of significance in scripture. This isn't the first time that we see things happening um, at this well here in Gibeon. It was a important water source. It was large um, as a water source. And so it would have been a place that lots of people would have come. Um, Joshua 9 and 10 um, is uh, one of the first times that we see things happening here. If you study Joshua, you would remember um, the battle when the sun stood still that happened over Gibeon. So that was this area here um, in, in Gibeon. Um, here is a more recent um, picture of it. You can see that overlooking um, the city there. So what happened next is exactly what you would expect to happen when two powerful warriors kind of face off. Think of every fight scene um, from karate kid to um, a boxing movie. Um, but so what happens is these men all gather um, uh, the force of or the troops of Joab on one side and the troops of Abner on the other. And Joab and Abner sit down and they have this conversation about what they're going to do. And so they come up with this idea to have kind of a representative battle, a play. Let's let the, the boys fight it out. And so rather than everybody go into battle, they said, you know what, you, you pick 12, I'll pick 12, and we'll let them fight. And whoever wins, that's who the victor is going to be. We see the same thing kind of happen um, when David faced off against the Philistines. Um, and Goliath said, send out a champion to fight me. 
So that's what's happening here. Um, that where they said, you know what, send us, send us 12 guys and, and you get 12 guys. And so they um they face off in this battle of champions, and it is a stunning, brutal fight. Um, the scripture says that they um grabbed each other around the head and stuck their spears into their sides, and they all fell down dead. You can see here this artist um, representation of what it might have looked like, where there's a crowd of onlookers here, and um, these men are just hand-to-hand, face-to-face, and they just slaughter each other. And um, the 24 men all die. That kicks off a brutal series of fighting. The, this place um, in scripture uh, is referred to as Helkath Hazurium, which means a field of daggers, because after this, the surrounding men who no doubt were cheering and um, roaring their support for their fighters began to fight after this tie, essentially. No one won, so the troops at large began to fight each other. Suddenly, Abner starts to retreat. He begins to run in this chase scene. Um, and we are introduced to Abishai, who scripture says is swift like a gazelle. And um, he chases down Abner. And the scene is almost comical um, in the fact that Abner says, is that you? And Abishai says, I Yes, in other words, that's the only thing he says in this whole little incident. Um, and he is chasing determinedly, doggedly after Abner. And Abner says, stop chasing me. Stop. Um, and then he is almost arrogant. Now, Abner was a seasoned warrior. He had been the leader, uh, one of the commanders of Saul's army. So he was a definitely a warrior. He had been defeating um, all these places, um, all these uh, armies up in northern Israel. So he was definitely a hardened warrior. And so Abishai is chasing him down. So Abner says, listen, fight one of the guys that are kind of more on your level. It's very, you can get the idea that it might almost have been condescending, like I'm going to defeat you, so just don't bother. Um, or you get the idea that he was trying to say, you know, listen, you just want a trophy to take back to show everybody how brave you are. Kill the guy, you know, that's slower than me um, and take that back. But Abishu would not be discouraged and he would not be thwarted from his single um, minded devotion to conquering and um, killing, defeating um, Abner. We, we don't know why, but he wouldn't be persuaded. Maybe he was arrogant and, just, and thought, no, I can beat him. Maybe he was hot-headed and just wanted to be victorious. Maybe he realized that Abner was the imposter and that it was Abner who was really the driving force behind Ishbosheth. Um, as king, and he knew he wanted to defeat him because then that would clear the way for David. We don't know why, but we do know that Abner turns and strikes him in the stomach, and he dies. Um, 
the, the Bible tells us that he struck him with the butt or the, uh, the backside um, of his spear, um, and it came out through his back, um, and Abner or um, Abishai died. So there's a lot of speculation about this. Um, maybe he struck him with the um, what would have been the blunter edge of his spear, um, meaning intending only to slow him down. And um, Abishai was chasing after him and didn't stop. And so the spear went through. Um, maybe he did just intend to kill him. We don't know, but um, ultimately we know that Abishai died. Abishai ran into trouble, literally and figuratively. He chased down a seasoned warrior and it cost him his life. As a result, his brothers went out to avenge his death. And so we see that Joab um, is now in pursuit of Abner. Of Abner yes. Um, and so um, Abner and his men, the men of Bethlehem, kind of gather on a hill and he calls out to Joab and says, can't we stop this? Can you stop chasing me? Let's end this now before more people die, is essentially what he's saying. And if you take it just in this situation, it almost seems like Abner's being the reasonable one. He's saying, listen, I don't want there to be any more trouble why don't you just tell everyone to stop following us and we'll all go our separate ways. But Joab makes it clear that Abner is the one that brought the fight to them. And so he says, we would have left you alone, but you called out warriors to fight. And so now we will pursue you because of um, our brother. Um, but it is the end at this point. Joab does call off the chase and they collect the body of um, Abishai and they bury it and they march through the night to get back home to Hebron and Joab or Abner, excuse me, and his men return back home as well. But this encounter kicked off um, what would be a a long-standing fight as um, ultimately they do want to avenge the death of Abishai. So at the end of this, we see that Abner was defeated. The losses from his side numbered over 300, whereas the men of Judah only lost 19 and 12 of them would have been in that hand-to-hand -hand combat around the well of Gibeon. What can we possibly learn from this chapter. Did you read it and go, there are some weird things going on in this little section of scripture. But I think that there are some important principles that we can take away from it. Let's look at some lessons. First of all, am I seeking God's direction for my life? We see repeatedly that David turns to God for wisdom. So how can we do the same for our life? Where can we turn um, to get some insight um, into God's directions. Um, obviously, scripture would be our first place that we should go. Um, scripture is very clear about things that apply even to our lives today. So that should be our first stop when we are looking for direction on um, the things that are in scripture or scriptural principles. The next would be godly counsel. 
Um, seek out advice from people who you know are godly and who will help you um, understand things God may have for you. Um, a pastor, um, a uh, one of your Bible study leaders, um, a friend who you know is a um, seasoned believer. Um, and then, of course, pray um, for guidance from the Holy Spirit, right? We can, you can ask God for direction. Um, we see that David did um, repeatedly, but so we do need to seek God's voice. Um, and um, along with that, um, a spirit of peace. You know, sometimes we think this is what we want to happen, but that's not necessarily what God wants to happen. And so have you ever noticed that sometimes you ask people something and you really just want them to confirm the decision that you've already made? You know what you're planning on doing and you want someone to kind of affirm it for you. Don't seek out those people. Seek out someone who's going to tell you um, from scripture's perspective and from God's perspective um, what they feel God's direction for your life may be. Um, and the next thing is, um, the next lesson, um, am I waiting for God to act? David waited to become king. He was in hiding. He ran for his life from Saul for years, um, approximately 15 years. He's still not king. Saul is now dead, but yet David is still waiting for God to promote him. And we can kind of see that during those years when he was in exile and he was hiding for his life, um, he was learning to wait. Psalm 27, 13, which was written by David, says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. When David was trying to decide if he was going to return back to the nation of Israel when he was leaving Ziklag, he could have walked through the, the doors, essentially, saying, God told me I was going to be king. Saul's dead. Here I am. But he didn't do that. He quietly moved into Judah, and then he lived there for five years as the king over Judah, but he didn't go out and seek other places in Israel, and he didn't go around saying, Listen, God told me that I'm the king, so now you all need to um, fall in line to that. He was waiting for God to promote him. Do you wait for God to move in your life? Sometimes we try to get ahead of things. We want to get ahead of God. Well, God told me that this was going to happen, and so I should probably do X, Y, or Z. Um, we tend to help God, don't we? Don't we think, well, I'm sure this is what God meant for me to do? Or we try to hurry along God's timing. We um, know that God has, is, has this something planned for us. And so we want to hurry it along by setting up the scene. Do you do that? Do you ever try to arrange things so that it works out to your benefit or to your favor? Um, God says, wait. When God promotes you, it's done in the right timing and in the right way. Think of um, when um, Jesus was talking in the New Testament and he said, it's better to be seated and then asked to come to the head of the table than to be sitting there and to be told to move back, right? Let God promote you. And then finally, 
Am I following godly leaders? Sometimes we follow leaders because they seem godly, right? They seem like they're doing the right thing. They have everything together. They look good from the outside. And sometimes even people who are ungodly can act godly. If you take just the scene with Abner out of context in scripture, and you take just that part out where he's being chased, um, he's saying, you know, I don't want to hurt anyone. Can't we just stop this bloodshed? And you take just that scene out. Um, it almost looks like Abner's the good guy here. Um, and so if you take a glimpse of someone doing something that seems like a good idea, that does not mean that they're necessarily a godly person. True godly leaders will always point you to God. They don't point to themselves. They don't point to their agenda, nor, dare I say it, in our current political climate, they don't point you to their political platform. David knew that God would raise him up. He didn't need to try to elevate himself. Interestingly, Ishbosheth allowed himself to be installed as king. Perhaps he felt it was his right as Saul's heir to become the king. Nevertheless, he let Abner elevate him. David waited and was content to wait on God. Are we willing to do the same? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lessons that we can learn from the example of David in your word. I pray that we will learn to seek you in our decisions. I pray that we will learn to wait on you. And I pray that we will make sure that we are seeking godly leaders. Um, help us to act in a way that glorifies and edifies you. In Jesus' name, amen.